When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Curioso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 179, Failure of Hope. When we left things off in 1644, the Civil War had taken a tenor to which the parliamentary forces were starting to pile up winds and the missteps of the king's forces were looming larger and larger. For Sir Thomas Middleton, the English-born Welsh noble, the year 1644 had shown just how successful he had been for the Parliament, having driven the Royalists back and preparing for a fresh campaign to seize the North Wales. He ran into a roadblock after all of his success. Keep in mind, this was a man who had captured quite a bit of Middle Wales and had started to pick apart North Wales in part to seize some of the larger fortresses to try and eliminate as much as possible those strong points that the royalists had held to. However, the parliament wasn't really interested in going town to town, castle to castle, to finish off the royalists in a barely significant area of the kingdom. Certainly, when there was a Chester and Liverpool and other significant cities and towns to take in England, the emphasis on Wales had died down quite considerably. So regardless of what he had wanted or hoped, the Parliament instead stripped him of his command and ordered him to return to London. This happened in June of 1645. This was part of the so-called Self-Denying Ordinance. Its successor bill, which formed the basis of all this, effectively removed nobility from military command structure. This would then create a new army that was developed in part to sort of supersede this idea and it would change how wars were fought and how much of the way the english systems of feudalism started to divest themselves this professional army would replace that gone was the last vestige of feudalism the loyalty was now to be to the whole country and to the religion of the protestant christianity and no longer for the old loyalties to lords and kings there was to be a new military that would be professionalized and in so doing would not be dependent on local loyalty as had been the case with older militias. This effectively means that instead of the system of feudalism where you had a lord who had so many subjects or so many knights who fought under him and then were enrolled whenever the king needed their help, this would remove that barrier. There would be none more of this idea it would all now roll into a army that would be based on the idea that all were equal under the eyes of god and all were fervent in their zeal as such so it was whether successful or not you could argue it was a more meritocracy than the previous 
additions of military usage were. But mm, as we'll see, that doesn't really happen. But it was the idea, anyhow. The Royalists, however, were not completely out in the fight, and certainly not in Wales. They were about to return with a vengeance, and with the hope of turning the tide once more in their favor. After leaving Wales in October of 1644, Lieutenant General Sir Charles Gerard marched to re reinforce the king's army in the aftermath of the Second Battle of Newbury, when the king withdrew to Oxford in November of that year. Gerard's army was sent to spend the winter at Monmouth. In March of 1645, Gerard was ordered to join forces with Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice in stopping further parliamentarian advances at Cheshire and Shropshire. The Royalists successfully relieved Cheshire and Beeston Castle, and then evacuated the parliamentarian garrisons in Cheshire. After which, Rupert and Morris marched to occupy Herefordshire, while Gerard took his forces into Montgomeryshire in mid-Wales. Middleton, meanwhile, had established contact with Colonel Ludham's forces in the south, who, of course, was still controlling much of the south at this point. The arrival of Gerard's army around the end of March 1645 disrupted Middleton's efforts to secure his hold on the region and severed contact between the two parliamentarian forces in central and south Wales. Gerard established his headquarters at Newton in Montgomeryshire, where he then rested his army and imposed harsh local levies for recruits and supplies. Something, of course, in the old system you would have to do, which is basically raise up a local militia and, of course, get supplies to supply that particular militia as well as your own forces without pillaging Something, of course, neither side wanted to do, but let's be honest, they all did at some point. That's just the way wars are generally fought, so it wouldn't have been a surprise by any means. Gerard's advance in South Wales began in mid-April. Gerard was ready to strike towards Pembrokeshire. Advancing rapidly across the Cambrian Mountains, he fell upon Lodham's parliamentarians on the 23rd of April at Newcastle Emlyn in Carmarthenshire, where they were besieging a royal garrison. Thus, taken by surprise, the parliamentarians were routed and over 500 of them were either killed or captured. Gerard, advancing swiftly on Haverford West, which he entered the town unopposed and captured. So by April 24th, the parliamentarians had either evacuated or fled, and these garrisons fell back to Pembroke and Tenby. The fall of Newcastle Emlyn and Haverford West left Cardigan isolated, so the garrison there was evacuated by sea back to Pembroke. Gerard continued his lightning campaign by storming Picton Castle in an attack on April 25th, and then took over Carew Castle on the 29th of April. Within a week, therefore, Gerard had recovered nearly all the territory lost since his departure in 1644. Once again, Colonel Lothern was confused and confined to the strongholds of Pembroke and Tenby, while Gerard settled down to raise recruits and supplies once again from the local vicinity. By mid-May 1645, Gerard had raised a force of 2,000 troops and 700 cavalry, 
to refresh his army, leaving full garrisons in place under his chosen officers, Gerard marched to reinforce the king's army once again. However, by the time he joined the king at Hereford in late June, the royalists had suffered their decisive defeat at Nazenby. Gerard's army was then broken up, and the troops joined Prince Rupert at Bristol, and the cavalry remained with the king as the nucleus of a new army he hoped to raise in South Wales. The Welsh gentry complained bitterly at Gerard's severity and in what had been done in order to prosecute the war, obviously making enemies on all sides at this point. Backed by a force of 4,000 troops known as the Peaceable Army, the gentry petitioned for the removal of Gerard and other English garrison commanders. In order to retain their loyalty and fearing a popular uprising against the royalists, King Charles agreed to replace Gerard, raising him to a peerage as Baron Gerard of Brandon in compensation. Gerard remained with the royal army throughout the king's march of August and September 1645, while Lord Astley replaced him as the royalist commander in South Wales. Although Lieutenant General Gerard left South Wales in May of 1645, strong royalist garrisons remained in place throughout the region, ones that he had obviously appointed and positioned. In mid-July, Major General Stradling and Edgerton, who had been left in command of Haverford West, were sent troops to destroy the growing corn around Pembroke. Threatened with starvation and encouraged by news of the parliamentary victory at Nazenby, Colonel Laharn gathered a force of 550 troops as well as 200 cavalry and two field guns from Tenby and Pembroke's garrisons and then advanced into Pembrokeshire on July 28, 1645. Laharn's forces occupied Caniston Wood between Haverford and Narberth. The infantry were then reinforced by a party of 150 seamen from Vice Admiral Batten's naval squadron, which had been anchored in Milford Haven. On August 1st, the Royalist commanders Stradling and Edgerton advanced from Haverford West to challenge Laharn with a force reported to be double the size of the Parliamentarians. The Royalists drew up on Colby Moor, where at about six o'clock in the evening, an advanced guard of Parliamentary cavalry, flanked by musketeers, moved to attack. The battle continued for an hour, but the Royalists were finally routed with 150 killed and 700 taken prisoner. That night, the Royalists abandoned the town of Haverford West, leaving only a small garrison in the castle. After a futile bombardment, the Parliamentarians scaled the castle walls on August 5th, taking the entire garrison prisoner. From Haverford West, Laharn moved swiftly to recover other royalist garrisons, and by the end of September 1645, the whole of Pembrokeshire was once again back in parliamentary hands. The gentry of Carmarthenshire and Cardiganshire declared for the Parliament during the this September reversal. The royalists abandoned Cardigan, and Major General Stradling surrendered Carmarthen to Laharn on the 12th of October, 1645. The last two royalist bases in Cardiganshire were Newcastle Emlyn, which surrendered to Colonel Lewis in December of that year, 
and Aberystwyth, which surrendered to Colonel Rhys Powell in April of 1646 after a sustained siege, one of which that would see the castle itself take some heavy damage. King Charles set out for Raglan in early August 1645 after writing to the Prince of Wales and warning him to prepare for the worst. The king, with 2,500 cavalry and troops, led Prince Rupert to gather what forces he could for the defense of the West. The king then marched along the Welsh border into the general intention of raising support from in the north of England. By August 18th, the king had advanced to Doncaster in Yorkshire, where he learned that the Covenanter, or Scottish, Protestant cavalry and the Parliamentary Northern Association army were marching to intercept him. The Royalists promptly withdrew to their stronghold of Newark and from there to Oxford, storming and plundering Puritan town of Huntington along the way. Although the king's army was scarcely adequate for the task, he marched from Oxford on the 30th of August to relieve Hereford, which was besieged by Lord Levin's Covenanters. As the Royalists then approached Hereford in early September, the Covenanters then withdrew and marched away to the north. It appears that Levin was unwilling to fight, but coincidentally, as the king approached, Levin received news of Montrose's victory over the Marquis of Argyle at Kilseath and hurried north to aid the Covenanters in Scotland. The king's army occupied Hereford on September the 4th, and further attempts were made to raise recruits in South Wales. King Charles himself returned to Raglan Castle, where, around the middle of September, he received the news of Prince Rupert's surrender of Bristol to the new model army. Lord Digby convinced Charles that Rupert had betrayed him. The king angrily dismissed Rupert from his service. Gathering what forces he could, King Charles set out to march to the north in a desperate hope of joining forces with the Marquis of Montrose in Scotland. He was unaware of the decisive Covenanter victory over Montrose at Philippon on September 13th. Meanwhile, the Committee of Both Kingdoms ordered Colonel General Sydneyham Ponnets of the Northern Association to cover the King's army and prevent it from breaking out into the Midlands. Ponnets advanced towards the Welsh border with 3,000 cavalry and dragoons. The King hurried north through the Welsh hills, evading Ponts, until he arrived at Chirk Castle on September 22nd. Here he then learned that the stronghold of Chester was in imminent danger of falling to the Cheshire Parliamentarians. With the loss of Bristol, Chester was the last landing place held by... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including... Popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. 
What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. The Royalists for the troops from Ireland, which Charles continued to hope and believe would save his cause, sending messengers urging the defenders to stand firm. Charles diverted his forces to relieve the beleaguered city. The city of Chester was a royalist stronghold from the beginning of the war. Its circuit of Roman and medieval walls was substantially repaired and strengthened during 1642 and 43, and an outer ring of earthwork defenses was constructed. After his defeat in the Battle of Nantwich in January of 1644, Lord Byron withdrew to Chester, from where he directed operations against William Brereton, the parliamentarian commander in Cheshire. Although Brereton gradually gained control over much of Cheshire during the spring and summer of 1645, Byron held the crossing to the River Dee into Royalist North Wales and prevented the parliamentarians from surrounding Chester or gaining a foothold on the Welsh side of the river. Brereton's forces stormed Chester in February of 1645 and attempted to scale the walls near the north gate. The attack was thrown back, but the parliamentarians set up close blockades of the city. The siege was disrupted when Prince Maurice arrived with a relief force in March. When he departed the following month, however, Lord Byron complained that he took 1,200 veterans of the Irish regiment away from the garrison, leaving only 600 regular troops and a number of armed citizens to defend the city. On September 20th, 
1645, Brereton's subordinate, Michael Jones, led a determined assault on Chester's outer defenses with 700 infantry and 700 cavalry and an unnumbered amount of dragoons. Jones' forces advanced under the cover of darkness and stormed the eastern suburbs at dawn, gaining control of the district outside of Eastgate. The parliamentarians moved artillery into the newly captured area and began bombarding Chester's inner walls with close-range and opening dangerous breaches on September 22nd. At this critical point, Byron received word that the king was marching from Wales with 4,000 cavalry to Chester's aid. King Charles arrived at the beleaguered city on the 23rd of September with his lifeguard, a handful of infantry, and Gerard's brigade of about 600 cavalry. The king's party entered the city from the Welsh side of the River Dee, which was still controlled by the royalists. Sir Marmaduke Langdale rode with the main body of 300 royalist cavalry to cross the Dee at Holt Bridge in the south of Chester, from where he planned to work around behind the parliamentarians besieging the city on the eastern side, thus trapping them between his cavalry and the Chester garrison. Langdale crossed Holt Bridge at about dawn on the 24th of September and advanced northward. At Miller's Heath, near the village of Roughton, he became aware of a large force of Parliamentarian cavalry also advancing towards Chester. Colonel General Sid Sydenham Ponitz, with around 3,000 Northern Association cavalry, had made a night march from Whitchurch in the hope of intercepting the King's army. Langdale deployed dragoons to fire on Ponce Vanguard as the parliamentary column advanced along the Chester Road. Ponitz counterattacked against Langdale's position on Miller's Heath, but was driven back, and the two sides stalemated as neither could advance any further towards Chester with the other in its rear. For several hours, Langdale and Ponitz faced one another at a distance of about half a mile, both reluctant to take further action without reinforcement. At about two o'clock in the afternoon, Colonel Michael Jones detached 500 cavalry and musketeers from besieging forces before Chester and marched down the Whitchurch Road to support Ponitz. Langdale withdrew a mile or so closer to Chester and took up new positions on open ground at Roughton Heath. The Royalists in the city observed James's movements and sent out a force of around a thousand cavalry and troops under Lieutenant General Charles Gerard to attack the rear of the parliamentary column. However, Gerard could not march directly out through the eastern suburb because of the besieging army. He had to maneuver around from the north. At Houle, Heath, on the fringe of Chester's eastern suburb, Gerard was attacked by Colonel Lothian with a unit of besieging parliamentarian army. Pinned down in heavy fighting, Gerard was unable to either attack Jones or support Langdale. On Routon Heath, Colonel Jones joined forces with Ponitz and his cavalry. Parliamentarian musketeers were then deployed in the hedgerows and the lanes around the village of Routon. Others were then positioned to cover the flanks of the cavalry, and Ponitz then advanced towards Langdale, who led his cavalry forward to meet the attack. 
Parliamentarian musketeers poured volleys of shot from the flanks at Langdale's advancing troopers. Badly disrupted by the musketry, the Royalists were soon broken by the Parliamentarian cavalry when they clashed in the center. The Royalists scattered, and some were seen fleeing back across the Holt Bridge into Wales, while others following Langdale himself towards Chester. The final stage of the battle was a confusing melee in the early evening beneath the walls of Chester as Langdale, retreating cavalry, blundered into the fighting between Gerard and Lothian. More infantry were then sent out from the city to cover the withdrawal of Gerard and Langdale, but they too were driven back by the triumphant parliamentarians. The king's youthful kinsman, Bernard Stuart, Earl of Lichfield, was among those killed. King Charles is said to have watched this disaster unfold from Phoenix Tower on Jester's walls, accepting, with some stoicism, the defeat of his best remaining cavalry. On September 25, 1645, King Charles fled Chester, accompanied by just 500 cavalry. He retreated to Denby and then made his way back to Newark. Lord Byron rejected all calls to surrender Chester. The parliamentarians constructed siege works to encircle the city and maintained a constant bombardment. Under the severity of Byron's command, the defenders repulsed attempts to take Chester by storm and mounted raids of their own to harass and disrupt the besiegers. Conditions continued to worsen as the siege continued into the winter. With many citizens dead or dying of starvation, the mayor finally persuaded Byron to surrender in January of 1646. Sir William Brereton's forces occupied Chester on February 3rd, 1646, bringing to end the last major battle in the area around Wales of this part of the Civil War. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History. And if you'd like to contribute to the funding of this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have yourselves a great day. Take care. Bye bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.